G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favour, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, 
so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Well, church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Good morning. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Zach, and it's my joy to serve as one of the pastors here at City on a Hill, Brisbane. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, Before we jump into uh, what is obviously a very, very interesting chapter in the book of the Bible, um, just a little bit of uh, news for you quickly. Um, If you received an email a couple of weeks ago uh, regarding uh, our church and a group called Acts 29, um, maybe you've got questions about that, maybe you have a bit of an investment in what Acts 29 is on about as a church planting network and sort of our relationship with them um, sort of coming to an end, uh, please come and chat to me, I'm more than happy to sort of talk you through any questions you might have about that. If you're sitting here right now going, either I didn't get an email or I didn't read it, um, then great. Um, <laughs> Also, uh, just to let you know, I'll be away next week. I'm going on leave uh, on Tuesday for a week, so I won't be here next Sunday. Uh, And then the week after, my dad has invited me to preach at his church up in Arana Hills. Uh, And so uh, just that's why I won't be here for the next two weeks. Uh, I'm looking forward to taking a week off, hopefully as much fishing as humanly possible uh, scrunched into that week. Uh, And then also really looking forward to being with my dad's church um, up in the northern suburbs uh, and preaching through 1 Thessalonians 4 with them. Uh, let's dive in now. Before I do, let me pray for us as we come to God's Word. Going to pray a prayer that's traditionally prayed on this Sunday, the first Sunday in the season of Lent, as we sort of uh, look forward to the season of Easter coming. Let's pray together. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations and you, as you know, the weaknesses of each of us, that each one finds you mighty to save, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And well, if you're anything like me, and I hope you're not, you know that there have been plenty of times when it seems like God has turned his back on you or he's sort of closed his eyes or put his fingers in his ears and he can't hear the cries of our heart. I'm reminded of uh, some dialogue from a classic comedy movie, Bruce Almighty, uh, when Bruce, played by Jim Carrey, uh, is talking with God, obviously played by Morgan Freeman and no other human being on the face of the planet. Uh, And Bruce asks God if he ever takes time off 
To which God replies, ever heard of the Dark Ages? It's comical, but it speaks to something that is actually quite real for us and has been real for the people of God all throughout history. There are uh, some Psalms and others talking about it in Scriptures. For example, Psalm 22, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And even Job says at one point, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. These are the the genuine concerns of our hearts sometimes. We can go through seasons where we feel like God might not even be real, or at least that He's not all-powerful or all-loving. As we come to Esther chapter 2 today, and we read it with adult eyes... Maybe a question that's going to come into our heart is, how could God possibly be involved in this? Where is God? There are some confronting issues in this chapter of Esther, and on top of what might have been a a difficult uh, sermon for some people last week, I want to acknowledge that this could be hard to wrestle with today as well. But let me encourage you also, as we work through this chapter, in fact, as we work through uh, the whole book of Esther, that we'll see God working. We'll see His hand silently at work on behalf of His people, and this aspect of God's being has been come to be termed God's providence. So what's the meaning of this word providence? Uh, here's a, just a simple definition. God's providence is the working of His power to uphold, guide and care for His creation. Now, this is at odds with uh, many other worldviews, which would suggest that while God created everything, He has since stepped back and just lets things happen as they might, like He sort of got the wheels of the universe turning, but now He's sitting back and just sort of letting things take Place. However, the Bible's teaching on God's involvement in His creation certainly supports the definition that God is working to constantly uphold, guide and care for His creation, which is an interesting concept, especially as we come to Esther 2 today. I'm sure that as we work through this narrative, some of us are going to be asking, how can God possibly be working through this? But I'm confident that we'll see this beautiful and true aspect of God's being shining gloriously through this text this morning. Uh, As we dive into Esther 2, uh, and as we keep going through this um, amazing and unique book of Esther, I've been praying that God would work something in our hearts as a church, that we'd be captivated by the providence of God, His providential work on behalf of His people for His own glory, and that we'd be struck by how God positions us, uh, as we'll see with Esther today. Often, we're in positions of life throughout life that we don't quite comprehend, but we can trust that God does. So, two main things that I hope we come away from Esther 2 with today, that we would be struck by God's providence and positioning, and that we'd behold the contrast between the self-full king and the self-less king. I realize I'm making up some words here, but I'm a preacher, so I get to do it. 
the self-full king and the self-less king. So, episode two, what is happening? Last week, the episode ended with the king being furious at his queen uh, and we witness him enforce this ridiculous edict upon the entire empire that wives must obey their husbands and do everything they say. And then Esther 2 sort of carries on straight after this. And so let's continue uh, this morning with sort of the exposition method that Dave used last week where we'll look at the introduction, the problem, the solution, the resolution and the conclusion. Um, If you've got your Bibles, keep them open in Esther chapter 2. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one uh, after the service. You can go and uh, connect with our Connect team out of the info desk out there, and they would love to put a Bible in your hands. Uh, And more than that, we'd even love to help you learn how to read your Bible. Um, So whether that's sitting down with one of us one-to-one and uh, us just showing you how uh, the Bible uh, works and how to go about reading it, um, or maybe that's you joining uh, with some people and doing just Bible readings during the week, whatever that might be, we'd love to help you understand how to read God's Word. Let's come to it today, Esther chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll read through to verse 4. It says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, Um, and what had been declared against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. So here the the scene's being set up for us. The king is finally chilled out from his drunken stupor and now that the relationship with Vashti is destroyed and because this very powerful person hasn't, he doesn't have to bother going about making amends with people that he's out of relationship with Uh, and so he's very open to this suggestion from his young men. And did you notice that this is a different group from the wise men in chapter 1 that he consulted about what to do now about Vashti and the law that gets put in place. He's not talking to these wise men anymore, um, and wise men should probably put in commas over here, uh, but now he's talking to his young men. Last week, Dave helped us to see uh, just how impressionable this king was but also how apathetic he is to his duty as leader of the empire in that he would throw all the major decisions to other people. And now we're witnessing him being persuaded uh, of an idea by his young men, literally young men who attended the king's needs, but who they don't really have any official power in the empire, but because of this king's poor sense of duty and responsibility of leadership, he gives them this incredible power of being persuaded that this new endeavor is a good idea. Remember, there are no wasted words in Scripture. We can understand exactly what is happening in this moment by looking at those words at the end of verse 4. This pleased the king. Already beginning to be set up. If this was a a TV show back in the olden days, it would cut to an ad right now. I know none of you all know what ads are. But now in these Netflix days, it would fade to black and open on a new scene. And while Scripture is silent in its direct reflections uh, on this king, 
we are meant to read a ridicule of the king through these verses. The king is so self-obsessed that, of course, the idea of combing his empire for young women that will please him is entirely a fine idea in his mind. Everything in this empire is set up for the pleasure of this one king. And we see this reinforced as we come into the next set of verses and encounter our, our first problem and resolution in chapter, in chapter 2. Uh, let's keep reading. going to read a big chunk now, but I know all of you are up for it. Verse 5 through to 18. It says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as as his own daughter. So when the king's orders uh, and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, to to the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favour, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would go into the king, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Then when the turn for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to, the king, to King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts of royal generosity. Now, there are a few things to point out in this passage. Firstly, did you notice the evidence that everything is being set up for the pleasure of this one king? This self-full king 
The one who had, the one who like everything in his empire revolves around his pleasure. Everything revolves around his being happy and satisfied without a care for the sake of his selfful satisfaction, even though many around him must suffer incredible evils. Men in his empire are castrated in order to manage his harems without him having to be concerned that his own pleasure would be at risk. And young women in this empire are taken from their homes and are subjected to a life of what can only be described as institutionalized abuse. If they didn't win the contest to be chosen queen, they aren't sent home. They're subjected to a life of living at the whim of the king's pleasure. And the, the narrative keeps highlighting the self-fullness of this king. And as we'll see, it's actually for a very providential reason. Secondly, I'm sure you noticed that we met some new characters. There is Mordecai the Jew, and that might seem like an unnecessary uh, sort of identifying mark uh, that we would know him as the Jew, but it will matter in the story. And there's some uh, detail given about his lineage, which, as we know, Scripture doesn't waste words. Uh, and that lineage of who uh, Mordecai is and sort of his background is going to become more important in chapter 3. But we also meet our protagonist, Esther. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, but her Persian name is Esther, which is another sign of just how these Hebrews have had to sort of assimilate into the Persian culture. They aren't just there to have a nice time in a different part of the world. They were taken captive by the Babylonians, and then the Persians uh, came and uh, conquered the Babylonians. And so these Jews are now living in this place. They, there is a, a, a a way that they can go back to Jerusalem and be a part of that again. But all of it is still under Persian rule and governance, um, even to the point where they get different names. The narrative helps us understand why Esther is going to play such an important part in this story. Verse 7 tells us that she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And Esther is taken into the king's palace. Now, what strikes me in the narrative of chapter 2 is what the author chooses to comment on and what he doesn't choose to comment on. Did you notice that as we read verses 5 through to 18, that what is highlighted as the problem that Esther is facing isn't so much the terrible institutionalized abuse by the king? That's sort of sitting there as this underlying thing like, yeah, this is messed up. This is incredibly wrong. But it's also sitting in a time and place where it, it actually didn't stand out all that much. You and I read it in 2024 and we are absolutely terrified and sick to our stomachs as we read that situation. But back then, that would not have been how it was read. It would have been understood that this was something that was just happening in that time and place. But what is highlighted by the author as the problem that Esther is going to be facing is more so the fact that she's a Jew that she's keeping this secret, um, and as we learn, she's doing that in obedience to Mordecai, and that she actually has a knack for winning people's favour. Now, I don't think we're meant to actually read these passages and behold Esther. 
I don't think we're, uh, I don't think the author is, is doing this and I don't think we should read it like this either. Esther certainly is not the evil villain of the story, but neither is she perfect in all that she does. Uh, as a Jew, Esther has actually broken God's law by marrying this Persian king. And she eats Persian food, which was uh, very likely against her food laws also. Now, sometimes this can be a little bit helpful, sometimes unhelpful. But in our minds, hopefully there's a little bit of resonance happening between, wait a minute, I can remember something very similar where someone was taken and put in a place where they didn't really belong uh, and they were told to do certain things and hopefully your minds are going to the book of Daniel and Daniel uh, sort of being taken into this part of the world where uh, it wasn't set up for him, the, the rituals and rules and laws and religions were not for him and his people, and he is told to stop worshipping his God, and he says no, and he continues to uh, stand against those evil laws, against his worship of the one true God. He doesn't eat what is laid out before him, but says, bring me the right food that I am meant to eat. And so we can see quite a, a brave, and staunch Daniel and his friends in that time, sort of standing up to the man, standing up to this oppressive regime that they were a part of. And it's an incredible story of just seeing someone who is absolutely so trusting in who God is that he would have the faith and the courage to stand up and own those things in that time. Now, we should be encouraged by Daniel. We should look to that and be really encouraged by someone who trusted God so steadfastly. But I think we've got to be careful that we don't put all of those same expectations on a young, vulnerable woman, Esther. She doesn't quite have the same opportunities that Daniel had to stand up in her time. She is a product of her place and her time, and she's a product of her societal position as well. And so while, yes, she hasn't done what we would probably stand here in 2024 and hope that she would do, hope that we might think that we would do if we were in her position, even though she doesn't do those things, we need to recognise she's not perfect, but she's also not the villain. So we need to be careful that we don't ascribe too much value to uh, look at what Esther does, go and be Esther. That's not the point of the book of Esther. It's not the point of chapter 2. This isn't what the narrative is doing. But this is where God's providence and positioning becomes so gloriously bright. God working in and through his creation uh, is providentially positioning Esther and Mordecai, his servants. In a time and place where uh, through their brave obedience they will play a part in God's plans and purposes coming about for the good of his people and ultimately to the praise of God's own Glory, And we uh, also see the resolution here to this part one problem. Esther continues to win favour. In fact, verse 15 tells us that she was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her. And she becomes queen, albeit through a series of horrendous events and within a culture that will continue to abuse her. God utilises all of this for his providential positioning of Esther and the importance of it will come about through the rest of the narrative. Now, before I move on to the second problem and resolution in chapter 2, it's worth pausing for a second and sort of coming back to my introduction. The question likely burning in our minds is, how could God let this happen? 
how is this evidence of an all-loving, all-powerful God? The only answer that Scripture gives is a long, drawn-out answer, roughly the length of the entire Bible. These passages cannot be read in isolation. They cannot be read in isolation to the rest of Scripture, otherwise we would have no hope. We would have no course to trust that God is providential. We would have no uh, ability uh, to trust that He is all good and all powerful. We would have to conclude that either God is not real or God is not all loving or God is not all powerful. But when we read these passages, these horrible things in light of the entire context of Scripture, we can see that God is working. We can see how God is orchestrating things intentionally and purposefully and that it all culminates in His one and only Son, Jesus, the selfless King. And this is where our hope lies this morning from these passages. As we witness these terrible things happening to vulnerable people, we have the privilege in our day to zoom out from the narrative and behold the contrast between Xerxes, the self-full king, and Jesus, the self-less king. And Grant kind of stole my sermon in his opening this morning, uh, but I'm hoping that the Spirit of God will use it to really reinforce that in our hearts and minds this morning, because we get to witness Jesus through the Gospel narratives, but also as the New Testament helps us unpack who Jesus is, and especially in contrast to the other kings in the world that we have. We see Jesus giving up His entire life for the purpose of serving and saving sinful humanity. As Paul the Apostle, he makes it clear for us in Philippians. Uh, I'm going to read in chapter 2. Uh, come with me in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2. And reading that same passage that Grant read this morning. From verse 6 says, Who, Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, our Saviour, King, gave up everything so that we might have life. Chapters 1 and 2 of Esther, along with the, the rest of Scripture, are highlighting for us God's providence. Highlighting that in, in God's knowing all things and working all things, the suffering that happened back here in Esther's time and the, the suffering that is being experienced by you and me today and by Christians all around the world, that the, the suffering of vulnerable people across the entire world, it isn't unseen, it isn't unknown, and it isn't going unanswered by God. But it is answered as we behold the beauty and wonder of King Jesus the King who gave up His glory, gave up His life for us and who has, as Paul described, 
been given the name that is above every name. Including the name above every government name, every sort of dictator and leader across the world who would impose their own uh, sort of thoughts and desires and evil upon the world around them. Jesus has a higher name, any name that might be of like a, a government system or a worldview or a way of living in the world, anything that we think that we are just, we're stuck in, maybe we're even oppressed by. Uh, you look around the world and see people who are absolutely trapped in the time and place that they are in, and it can be so difficult for us to think that there's any other power bigger or above that power, and yet Paul may makes it very clear that Jesus has the name above all other names. In this selfless King Jesus, church, justice will be had and suffering will be brought to an end. And God's unfolding plan of redemption and salvation will be brought to its beautiful and powerful conclusion in all of God's people living in perfect unity with each other, but most importantly, with God in His perfect glory. And as we close out episode two of this incredible story of Esther, we, we see God's providence and positioning highlighted once again in these final verses which set up for us the sort of the main problem thread that weaves throughout the rest of the narrative of Esther. Come back to the book of Esther and let's keep reading together. Chapter 2 verses 19 through to 23. It says, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was singing, sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. There isn't too much to unpack. Uh, in this final scene of episode two. It's a fairly clear cut that certainly acts as an episode finish, not quite a, a cliffhanger into chapter three, but enough intrigue that we think, why was that important? Why does the author bother telling us about this event? There aren't too many details given, but what is given is monumentally important. And the author makes sure that we take it seriously by highlighting its importance in that final sentence. It says, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles, and I hope you caught this, in the presence of the king. That's going to become incredibly important later on in the story. And episode two fades to black. And we're left holding the pieces, trying to figure out what comes next and what all of this could possibly mean for tomorrow morning when we wake up. Usually at the end of a sermon, we're looking for something to do. We're wanting to be told, because of what we've read and unpacked, this is what we're going to go and do about it, or this is how we're going to respond to that word. And that is good and right, as long as the text is saying it. As far as this morning goes, I think the text is saying two main things. One is something for us to inquire about, 
Another is for us to simply behold. So what question does this text ask of us? I think it asks us deep down inside ourselves if we are convinced that the world is actually all about me. It asks us to inquire of ourselves who we think sits on the throne of our life. Who is all of this really set up for? The reality is, as as fallen sinners in a fallen and broken world, our natural uh, default, apart from the grace of God, is to worship ourselves and believe that everything should be as we want, that everything should be subservient to my desires and my dreams. But as Esther is already helping us to see When this is the default of our hearts, like it's the default of King Xerxes, it leads to destruction. It leads to the destruction of others around us, and ultimately it leads to the destruction of our own souls. And so Esther chapter 2 is asking us, are we more like King Xerxes than we'd like to admit? Do we have a self-full heart and motivation? Now, the question to that, uh, sorry, the answer to that question is undoubtedly yes. Definitely to a lesser or greater degrees, but the answer right in the very core of us on this side of eternity is yes. So, what does this look like? What does it look like for us to be self full people, think that we are the ones sitting on the thrones of our own lives. Well, really, it's just to be in contrast to how Paul highlighted who Jesus was. It's when we take the name that was given to Jesus, the name above every name, and when we give that name to ourselves. When we say, you know, Jesus isn't the name above every name when it comes to the choices I make, the way that I live, the way I think about people, the way I think about money, the way I think about where I'm living, how I'm living, what I'm doing, uh, the way I think about what the gospel means and what it's done in my heart. When When we're thinking about ourselves, when we're not really taking seriously that Jesus is the name above every name, that's when we start ascribing it all to ourselves, like, I'll make my own decisions. I'll make my own choices. No one will tell me what to do with my money. No one will tell me what to do with my time. No one will tell me what to do with my job. No one will tell me what to do with my relationships. No one's going to tell me what to do with my house. No one's going to tell me to do with whether I come to church on time or not. No one's going to tell me any of these things. I will make my own choices. And then that's just the surface level stuff that's really easy to name. Really, this question is digging really deep down inside of us and it's sort of whispering a question, who sits on the throne of our lives? Is Jesus really the one in our life who is the name above every name? And then, of course, we we want to know what the answer is. We want to know, if he's not the one who rules in my life, how does that happen? Do I just wake up one morning and make a decision, now now Jesus is Lord and King, great, um, we'll figure that out as we go to work and, and just step that out. How does it actually work that Jesus is the King who sits on the throne of our life? And that's where we get to point two of our application today. And as I said, sometimes we need to leave a sermon and go about and do something. Less so in a sense this morning. This morning, 
the application is, let's behold Jesus. How do we dethrone ourselves from the seat of our own hearts? We look to the selfless king and we keep looking to him. We keep seeing what he's on about. We keep seeing all that he's done. We keep understanding his grace and love and forgiveness and mercy, even though time after time after time we mess it up and we continue to sin and not love as we're being called to. We keep looking up to his love and grace and mercy time and time again. We keep looking to this selfless king as scripture is highlighting for us. Look to the one who gave up his glory gave up his life so that you might live in the sense of be uh, see the contrast between this king and the one who it's all about himself and everything is set up for his own pleasure. Keep looking to the king who gave up everything that you might have life. This morning as we leave chapter 2, my hope and my prayer is that we would behold the selfless king. We would be struck by a God who is so loving and powerful that he is upholding, orchestrating and caring for every moment, for each and every single one of us. And even though we might not at all times be able to see the good in the outcome from it, we can keep trusting that this selfless king is the one who is reigning and ruling and orchestrating all these things on behalf of his people for those who love him. This morning, church, as we've been struck by the self-fullness of this Persian king and see the evidence of that in our own hearts, this morning, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the self-less king who gave it all up that you might have life in him. As the band comes, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you, Father, that we know that your word uh, is all your word, that it is all from you and it is all good for us as your people, that we might continue to grow in Christ-likeness, we might continue to know Jesus and go about making him known. And we're thankful that this morning we've even seen this from the Old Testament, from a story that is thousands of years old, in a time and place that is so foreign and removed from anything that we have ever experienced. Thank you that we can look at that narrative, we can look at these characters, we can look at these situations and hear you speak to us and call our hearts to fix and focus our eyes on your one and only Son, Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we go into this week and as we're wrestling with the weight of what is uh, in the narrative of Esther chapter 2, Lord, I I pray that through the power of your Spirit, we would be confronted by that question of who is sitting on the throne of our hearts? Are we about ourselves or are we about King Jesus? I pray, Holy Spirit, you would help us to fix our eyes and our hearts on the selfless King, on Jesus who, for our sake, gave up his glory 
gave up his life and now hands us salvation through grace alone. Father, I pray that you would seal this in our hearts this week as we go into the world that we face. I pray you continue to help our eyes be lifted to Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.